Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And the show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making other people healthier in this world. I'm super excited today to have Dr. Rob Fields on the show. Dr. Rob Fields is the Chief Medical Officer of Population Health at Mount Sinai. And um, we're going to go into some interesting topics, ones that we've heard a little bit about, but he's going to bring an interesting perspective on a couple of things. And uh, I don't want to steal his thunder, but uh, Rob, thank you for joining us and thanks for making time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great, great. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit. Take us back. Tell us a little bit about your origin story. Tell us about what led you to where you're at today. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm a family doc. Uh, that's what I went to medical school to do. Uh, and uh, originally from, uh, I was born in Puerto Rico and, and it's relevant to sort of this path, but um, my family, all on my mom's side is Puerto Rican and grew up in Florida after uh, early, early on. Um, and then decided to do family medicine. I knew I wanted to do primary care and really loved seeing both the, all the extremes of age and all the variety of conditions that you get in that experience. So uh, moved to North Carolina for residency and then uh, op- ended up opening a private practice with a really good friend of mine. And, it, and I say all that because what I realized very quickly in trying to run a business in healthcare as a primary care physician uh, in what I would say suburban North Carolina. It gets pretty rural pretty fast in Asheville, North Carolina, but um, Asheville itself is pretty suburban. Um, but one of our big goals was uh, uh, was to take care of the underserved. Uh, like I mentioned, I speak Spanish, and so I wanted to see Spanish-speaking patients in our area, which in that part of North Carolina often means uh, a high density of Medicaid patients, a high density of uninsured um, and uh, folks that are either working agriculture or factory workers or service industry that seemed to be the predominant type of patients we had. And, and what I realized really quickly is that the unfortunate thing for the business that we were trying to run is that while we felt very good clinically and ethically and morally about what we were doing, uh, it, it created a pretty difficult payer mix situation for us. And ultimately, one of those lessons, you know, there Lots of things we are proud of clinically and, and on the technology side that we did in that practice. But I think, you know, my, my friend Andy and I were both really frustrated about the, what I would say is the injustice of medical care that those that need it the most often mm-hmm. not only have the most difficulty getting it, but also make the business of medicine unsustainable. And so and on big picture, it relates to what I do now and that health systems suffer from the same situation, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. here at Sinai, for example, I, I believe that these statistics may not be exactly right, but it's pretty close to somewhere hovering around 70% of our patients are government payers. Um, that's a difficult payer mix in, in an area that's that's otherwise pretty expensive to operate in. Um, and it, it just makes the, the financing of healthcare difficult. And then therefore, the care that we provide to our highest highest risk patients a little bit more difficult as well. But um mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I, you know, through a path after private practice, became employed uh, and um, really got lucky. Was really interested and involved in specific groups that were getting together trying to solve these problems. Kind of pre-ACO, mm-hmm. um, had a roundabout path in informatics and the use of data and technology. And and then uh, as we were forming our first ACO in Western North Carolina, um, had the privilege of being asked to be their uh, chief medical officer. So led the clinical operations for that ACO. And we were very successful, I think, 
because of two things. Uh, one, we had an exceedingly strong and empowered primary care base in Western North Carolina. And mm-hmm. secondly, our care management operations were tied very to in a very significant way, in concrete way, to closing social determinants gaps. And that allowed us to be successful in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, saving around $11 million on a, on a benchmark of $8,500 per beneficiary, which is if you know anything about that sort of business, uh, that's a pretty low cost benchmark. And so to mm-hmm. be able to get an additional 11 million in savings is was pretty telling. And, and I, I, again, I think it's due to our work around social determinants and, and strong mm-hmm. primary care, but ultimately led to getting recruited here at Sinai uh, on a much bigger level and a much more difficult market actually mm-hmm. to do this work. And so I've been here, it'll be a year next week. And I'm excited about going down this path. Yeah. No, congrats, congrats, and it's really exciting and fascinating that you you started off from a from a business perspective as well and merged the medical and business worlds and saw some areas of opportunity. Um, uh, I think most importantly, you didn't explicitly say it, but I know you're a Gator. I, I did my MBA at uh, at University of Florida, so go Gators! Uh, yeah. And and my yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad was born in uh, Guayana, Puerto Rico. My mom was born in Ponce. Oh, wow. I was born in Brooklyn. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, definitely some commonalities there. And it's interesting that it's great to have that perspective. I think, you know, growing up, you know, the Florida landscape's pretty interesting. The, um, you know, access to care is, is a, is a dominant factor now. And, and it's, it's exciting though, your focus on SDOH or social determinants as well, but, uh, super cool stuff. So yeah, it's been um, a fun ride for sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's uh, well. I'd love for you to to elaborate a little bit more. So you cut, hit a, uh, a couple topics, right? So Mount Sinai, right? Great opportunity in that area to go deeper on SDOH or social determinants of health. There's a lot of different dimensions, um, you know, underlying pinnings of of behavior change, uh, trauma, resilience um, in, in these factors. Can you elaborate on some of these on how maybe some of these pieces are related? Or more importantly, you know, what what's the difference that makes a difference in leveraging social determinants to help people get healthier? Yeah. Uh, so I think I, I sort of view our system as being geared to serve a pretty niche population. I think in the current state, with without any other, you know, unusual delivery changes, our system is geared to serve those who are relatively uh, literate both you know, uh, in terms of language, but also in health literacy. Mm-hmm. It serves those patients that are generally well off, not necessarily rich, but at least have offered, have their lives offer them some degree of freedom, for example, to show up at an appointment in the middle of the day, for instance, um, because they don't, they won't get, they're not in danger of getting fired, for instance. Um, I think it serves those patients that are relatively healthy or just have a few chronic conditions. I think it serves those patients pretty well. Um, but, you know, beyond that, it starts getting a little dicey. And so, mm-hmm. for example, I don't think that it serves either age extreme very well. You know, young, healthy patients, generally we force them, for example, through our benefit uh, design to have young, healthy people utilize healthcare care uh, in ways that aren't terribly helpful. For example, we force them to get a physical every year. There's no data that that actually helps them long term. It mm-hmm. might be better that, uh, you know, a healthy 22-year-old might do better with some coaching and education, um, some guidance around uh, avoiding trauma and accidents, but they probably don't need their cholesterol checked every year. But we, you know, again, benefits often push that sort of behavior. So it doesn't really serve the young, healthy folks very well. 
And it definitely doesn't serve the older, sicker, or even mentally ill populations very well either. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about that, I think how we force these high-risk individuals into a model that isn't really built for them, it, there is a significant amount of tension. And so what I get kind of interested in is, of course, you know, it starts with aligning the finances and, and that's fine. And that was sort of my, my lesson that I mentioned earlier, early on, is that the incentives have to be aligned correctly. But in order to have an impact, I think about it from those patients' point of view. What would it take for a system to serve those patients well? And it means solving some inherent problems. So I can have a patient that comes into the office with complex diabetes, and I can write them a 1,000 prescriptions for insulin, but not realizing that their priority might be just getting food at all, or having stable housing, or uh, you know having enough money to provide for their children etc, etc. They don't care about diabetes. I mean, diabetes might be number one on my list, but it's probably number, you know, 100 on their list. Mm -hmm. And so unless we start solving those initial problems in the hierarchy of needs, we will likely lose. We being healthcare are likely going to lose every time because those patients have different needs. So I, I know that the key to sort of to really driving success in the when you think about the risk pyramid at the top of the top of the pyramid kind of folks is to start trying to solve those social determinants gaps um, mm-hmm. before we can even start talking about the clinical stuff. And in some cases, and I think many cases, solving those gaps, actually, that if you do that, then the clinical stuff seems to take care of itself. We see mm-hmm. that a lot of mental illness, for example, providing stable housing often can go a long way, um, it, it, even compared to sometimes medication, to getting folks stable and keeping them out of the psychiatric unit, for instance. Um, mm. There's just a lot to be said for those basic needs. I, the, I think the difference, though, I, there's certainly in the last couple of years has been a lot of talk about social determinants. You can't go anywhere, any population health conference or article or journal without hearing about social determinants. I think the difference, though, is that I would say in a, in a sort of gross, generalized sort of way, the typical model of anything that I would call care management is, okay, we're going to identify social determinants gaps. That's usually where, where people often go, well, we need to do an assessment and collect that information. And that's great. But very, but much less attention is paid to the operations and processes by which we close those gaps. Mm-hmm. So we collect the information and may even refer, a social worker may refer a patient to a whole host of social service agencies. But I think it's only a minority of institutions that actually follow the, the patient or guide them through that, those um, social service interventions and follow the case until those gaps are closed. You know, often mm-hmm. it stops at the referral. And I think the level of accountability needs to be all the way to the, to the result, which is closing the social determinant gaps. I also think that... Systems often revert to trying to build it all themselves, meaning, well, we're going to have the social worker try to build everything and solve all of those problems. That's not scalable or sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, I think it also requires a community-based approach. So what the way we're thinking about it uh, at Sinai is, is similar to work, you know, my team together, we did it in the past, and that is engaging our community-based organizations, our nonprofits, into the care plan, making them a part of the healthcare team as much as any nurse, social worker, physician, they need to be engaged and involved. Um, and, and to some degree, it's redefining who we define as a healthcare provider. You know, um, they mm-hmm. are very much a part of the care team. 
And so we're trying to build the technical solutions to get them involved and um, and the workflows and engagement uh, on on the part of those CBOs to get them involved into the care plan throughout the city mm-hmm. so we can track and then collect the appropriate data, of course, to track the closure of those gaps. Um, so there's, yeah, so we're trying to hardwire that into the workflow. I have bi-directional referrals, for example, to the nonprofits, uh, how to create the care plan such that social determinants gaps are in the same hierarchy as clinical gaps and clinical goals. Um, and, and then track that data accordingly. So if we're finding, Hey, we've got an area, uh, in the Bronx that has a pretty consistent housing issue. Well, how does that translate into policy, um, and mm-hmm. how we can influence public health that way? So that's, that's kind of the general framework for how we're thinking about SDH. Um, mm-hmm. And we're, very, very yeah, cool. Just a follow up question to that. I mean, um, so lots of sophistication in being able to track and tie these elements together. So if we're tracking, predicting, tr- not predicting trends, but seeing the trends and then triggering the right service to occur at the right time. Can you elaborate on maybe from like a systems or process perspective, some interesting things that you're seeing that, that bear promise either at Mount Sinai or, you know, in your, your, your previous history? Yeah, I, th- I think um, one of the maybe more in, uh, innovative things that we started to engage uh, engage in is the use of consumer-driven data to help inform uh, mm-hmm. inform our team around social determinants gaps even before we call mm-hmm. the patient. So what, what I mean by that is I, I think every pop health entity, of course, uses claims uh, to run all sorts of algorithms to either stratify patients from high to low risk and even perhaps to use it in a predictive way to to predict a specific event, uh, ER <laughs> use or inpatient use, that's that's pretty bread and butter kind of stuff. Um, we are partnering with uh, with our data partner to uh, use not only claims and EMR information, but then use consumer data, so purchase data, and run that through machine learning, and so to use it and, and use it to not only predict utilization, uh, so we can predict the likelihood of a, a unplanned admission in the next thirty days, but then also use the consumer data to help along five domains of social determinants, uh, what else the patient might be at risk for, whether it be housing, transportation, finance, uh, lack of caregiver support, or uh, poor health behavior. So we, we know that in advance before we even talk mm-hmm. to the patient. And that helps us design a more individualized care plan. Um, and it individualizes the approach of our social workers. So imagine the power of a if you're a social worker doing proactive outreach for a patient on behalf of a, one of the providers in the network, to know in advance that the patient might have a housing problem or transportation problem and mm-hmm. perhaps gear your assessment to be individualized for that patient is is a pretty powerful tool. Um, mm. You know, it's interesting, the more we get into the pop health world and think about big populations and large groups of people, it, the reality is that what it it also simultaneously requires mass customization, right? Because everyone's a little mm. different. They come at it from a different place. And when you get down to those individual relationships, it's that kind of information that allows us to do that individualized care. Interesting. Um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Fields, I, I guess just to go a little bit deeper on one thing you mentioned that's fascinating. I, I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn, lots of lots of homeless, um, you know, that I, I saw growing up. And I'm, I'm here in Silicon Valley, downtown San Francisco. You know the phenomenon that's happening out here with yes, homelessness. Um, what are one or two trends or, or things that you're seeing or assumptions when it comes to 
you know, when you're looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and getting consistent shelter for those that are uh, mentally ill or homeless, um, any any interesting things that you're seeing, um, it's I'm, I always love like redefining like what our assumptions should be. Like, is it like most cities like New York do have great, you know, services to get people the housing that they need affordably or is there still gaps there how, how should how should our listeners how should we be thinking about you know shelter and that foundation and from that from that social determinant of health right um in in full transparency having only been here a year i think i'm still i, I don't yeah. know that i've been here long enough to see the overall trends but right. I, I think it is fair to say that you should assume nothing um, mm-hmm. Most of us probably have no idea what mm-hmm. it's like uh, for a lot of the folks that we serve. Thankfully, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, most of us have not had to deal with those things. But I, I think it is very easy to sit in a conference room or in a boardroom and make assumptions as to why people utilize the way they do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is not unusual for me to be in in meetings in in health systems or in other groups and have very well-intentioned folks, uh, you know, kind of beat their heads into the wall trying to figure out, well, why aren't patients uh, more adherent to their care plan around mm-hmm. whatever condition, heart failure, COPD. And and it's shocking to me that it takes a long time for folks to get to the aha moment that, gosh, it's just not because they're bad people or non-compliant, it's because their lives are incredibly complex. Um, and, uh, you know, that whether they whether it's housing or mental illness, or they had to make 150 different difficult decisions before they got to the appointment because they have someone, you know, gosh, we've seen all sorts of things. Some uh, mm-hmm. a family member that's using uh, illegal substances in the home. They're having to navigate so many things before they see us that I, I think it's, it's, I would encourage us as providers and deliverers of care to, to not always, I think we have a tendency to assume the worst. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think it's best to assume nothing and ask more questions and listen. Um, I, I think to answer your specific question about trends, I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I know enough yet. Um, housing is a universal concern almost anywhere, right. especially in big right. cities, for sure. I think that um, food insecurity becomes a significant issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, there's also a significant abundance here, which is... Uh, New York is an interesting place in terms of the yeah. disparity. Uh, so there, there's a lot that we can provide, and I'm looking forward to finding some solutions uh, awesome. using community approaches. But th- there's another thing I wanted to maybe quickly mention. I, th- I think yeah. where I think about the future of pop health is actually, I mean, there's certainly lots of cool stuff around data and machine learning and mm-hmm. all this stuff, and, and I think that's great. I'm sure you've had folks talk about that, but. I'm actually particularly interested in the intersection and I see that more and more the intersection of social sciences and behavioral sciences with healthcare. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we, uh, I, I think trying to get folks from, from A to B requires an individualized approach. And, and that is absolutely true. Um, I don't think physicians are necessarily really great at that, but in one of the things to think about in terms of behavior change is that these like I was mentioning, these difficult patients that have to go through all these uh, decision points and issues that they have to navigate through the day, that I sort of see it as they have t- a, a significant history of trauma, maybe micro trauma during the day, all the struggles that they go through. Um, and I'm really interested on the effect of trauma over time uh, on our highest risk patients and things like you know somatic complaints and utilization 
for things that are really a result of trauma. We know that that adverse childhood events have morbidity and mortality uh, effects later in life. But I also think that just as adults, having uh, trauma day in and day out, uh, which is absolutely true for our highest risk patients, has a real effect as well. So I'm, mm-hmm. we're actually thinking about ways of tra- how we might build resilience in high risk populations. We might not mm-hmm. always be able to fix the traumatic events, but if we can help teach skills to to deal with the most extreme effects of trauma, um, we're we're looking into that um, here in some of our high risk communities. So we'll mm-hmm. maybe have, be able to talk in some future time about if we were able to get it done and what it, how it worked. Yeah, you know, that's it's super interesting, right? You know, behavior change, trauma, microtrauma. On, on the point of teaching skills, um, I guess the end result is, you know, if you can transplant certain skills for patients that have longer-term trauma or microtrauma, what are some of those skills or maybe what's some of that, that education or training that goes involved into it? I'd love to understand that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, there are a couple of models out there. I mean, we all know about the effects of the positive effects of things like mindfulness, for instance, and things like mm-hmm. that. On, uh, but that's that's complicated, and it takes a, a ton of practice. Um, you know, I, I certainly have one that I've tried over and over again to kind of establish a mindfulness practice, and sometimes struggle. And and I have all the means to be able to do it, right? I have time and I have all those things. So thinking about our highest risk patients that don't have those things, I think it's an oversimplification to say, well, they should just do mindfulness training. Uh, I have friends in in North Carolina that uh, were related to the residency program I went to that have they turned me me on to a tool called the Community Resiliency Model. Um, And there are some folks down in uh, Asheville and other parts of the country uh, in California. There are some other folks as well that have used this model in areas like Haiti after the earthquake, for instance, and other uh, areas of natural disaster, where you can actually teach fairly quickly lay personnel, so it doesn't require a licensed professional. Um, It's sort of a train-the-trainer model. Teach resiliency skills like um, using grounding in your senses, for example, in the midst of a panic uh, or high-intensity anxiety related to to trauma, uh, doing things like, you know, counting the little you know, specks on a ceiling, for instance, or uh, positioning yourself that you push hard against the wall, like really just push as hard as you can. That, that physical grounding in your senses can actually have a calming effect neurochemically. Um, and so it's, it's concrete skills that you can do in the moment when you're feeling somewhat out of control, um, and then can open the door to, sort, to more sustained therapies, for example, things like mindfulness and other things. Um, it, that is a, a exceedingly gross oversimplification, but but it's those kind of concrete sensing skills that that um, are part mm-hmm. of the model. Um, but the best part about it is, again, you don't have to be a licensed professional. You can train folks pretty quickly to teach others, and so it can spread. So in a public health sort of way, you can imagine uh, community health workers, for instance, in high risk communities teaching folks these skills. You can imagine mm-hmm. uh, even community paramedicine. At, at my last role at Mission Health in Western North Carolina, we had our community paramedics uh, teach patients resiliency skills. So I think it it's, can be it can be effective, um, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not very well studied and certainly not well studied in a population health sort of way where we're actually trying to a- attach that to its effects on utilization and outcomes. So I think we're we're interested in maybe uh, trying to design some models around that here. Mm. 
Yeah, it's super fascinating. It'll be interesting to see the data of, you know, like training different individuals with spectrums of, you know, this person over here has schizophrenia, just had an episode. What's the sensing, you know, training, teaching, and their receptivity of being able to apply some of these things and what it does for them, getting that data, putting that back into the model. But then on the, probably on a parallel end, you have, you know, someone that isn't, you know, has food security, has shelter, doesn't have mental significant mental issues but they're doing some of the sensing stuff and maybe getting more into the mindfulness stuff and seeing how those those contrasts i've never heard it about it in that way it almost seems like a found even just a just a more basic foundational element to to mindfulness which i agree yeah it does <laughs> does take a lot of practice right and, and sometimes you need an app and you know some people are disciplined enough to have just a watch in a room and, and go to town and be fine right, or yeah. nothing I, i'm not there yeah. yet i need an app i'm not there yet either but, yeah <laughs> but and, and it's hard uh, to expect our our high-risk yeah. patients to do that right so I, right. I think the goal of some of this crim stuff is is to use your senses to be in the moment kind of ground yourself in the moment in the way that mm -hmm. mindfulness tries to do in a maybe bigger way um mm -hmm. but and maybe as much as anything, it's a building block to to kind of get you to a, a better place in the moment and then open right. the door to other things. Right, right. No, this is great. This is great. Um, Dr. Field, so I'm um, curious, along those same lines, you know, kind of as we, we always go through on the show and you kind of paved the way of a little bit on like exciting things and possibilities in the future for, for health in regards to SDH and trauma, microtrauma and, and resilience. But what are some other things or maybe in the same space that you believe that haven't been proven yet or have yet to been proven yet? Tell us a little bit more about your vision of healthcare in the future. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've, we've got a, a couple of things that are stressing the system now besides finances. And mm -hmm. the one big one that we all know about that I'll maybe address and think about for the future is our workforce. We've got a couple mm -hmm. problems with the workforce now as it relates to physicians. We have too many of the wrong type that are needed mm -hmm. for the future. Um, and, you know, conversely, of course, you know, too few of the right type, uh, meaning that we have too few primary care physicians for the level of uh, intense medical complexity that's about to come at us uh, as the population ages. Um and so it creates somewhat of a math problem. It's all cr also created a workforce, uh, even within the primary care space, that's aging um, and um, will increase the disparity in, in moving over the next 10 years or so. And then we've got a workforce that's also burning out. Um, so of those that are there, they need their own resiliency skills, right? They, 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 have, they struggle to kind of make it work in the current environment that, that really drives a lot of volume and drives intense documentation requirements that that really are just kind of suck the soul out of most physicians I know. Right. Um, and so I, I think when we look to the future, you know, I, I think IHI has done it with the quadruple aim and sort of thinking about how we take care of our workforce. But but I see a, a couple of things that all systems need to work on e emergently, and will have to drive us into the future. Um, and when in its in terms of clinical transformation. Uh, think changing the face of what primary care looks like. It's going to have to be uh, designed differently to serve both a much a younger population and older at the same time. So how do we integrate things like 
um, virtual care and um, in telemedicine, all those things that are already happening, but truly integrate it with the financial model and operations of the standard primary care practice, not just the leading mm-hmm. end. Um, and then the, the other piece is, piece is the integration of other uh, team members. So the most advanced primary care practices in the country have well-integrated behavioral health, clinical pharmacy, social work. And so we redefine what it means to be a caregiver, to be something much broader than a physician. Um, and again, that happens in the, the leading edge of practices, but it's far from standard. Um, the tricky part about all that when we think about the future is that the consumer also has to change. And I think that's where we're severely lagging, even though we see leaders on the provider side to accomplish these things, changes in delivery and team-based care. There hasn't really been a ton on the consumer side to educate the consumers on um, what is the most appropriate place for care? What is it? What does primary care actually mean to you? Um, what does it mean to utilize your pharmacist in a different way? Um, and and so we'll we'll see where that takes us. I, I'm interested in a recent um, uh, uh, company that we're we're evaluating um, is that really empowers the consumer to choose a more appropriate uh, side of care and to be able to self-triage. So we know that everyone Googles their symptoms and almost always everyone ends up with some terrible thing like cancer. They're going to die tomorrow if you if you Google, you know, your uh, your chest pain, uh, you're going to have a heart attack or cancer, according to Dr. Google. Well, so the inf- the information is not the problem, right? We can we can get the standards of care for heart failure, COPD. We can Google all that stuff. The information is a commodity. But the tricky part is bridging the clinical context gap of how to interpret that data. And increasingly, we're seeing some companies take that on using AI and other formats to be able to inform the consumer and self-direct the, the consumer to make more appropriate choices. Mm-hmm. I think that will help as well to kind of relieve some of the burden um, and change some of the utilization patterns we're seeing across our systems. I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, it, you, your, your vision of the future culminates all these different pieces that are really critical and key. You know, it's like unlocking the innovations, um, you know, requires us to solve that capacity and math problem, right, from the primary care side. And just reflecting back on a couple of other things you said, too, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, you know, making sure that these services can be covered. We're having the access to the right data and that the payers and providers are, you know, using these models to, 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 to get the care where it needs to go. Right. And so, um, Dr. Fields, this is super fascinating. I really appreciate your time and for you sharing, uh, your experiences, your background, but most importantly, you know, the work that you're doing and, you know, you know, you really, it's a blessing that you're in the the intersection of, um, these social factors and, and applying interesting models. So really would love to have you back on the show and recap some of the projects that you're doing in the space. Um, but, um, what would be a good way to engage with you if our listeners wanted to reach out to you and connect with you? Uh, sure. My uh, email is probably best. It's uh, robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Um, we also lead a podcast series on, on pop health that, that's right. centered around some of the programming here at Sinai. That's Mount Sinai yeah. Health Partners podcast. On, um, you, can, you can listen to that too to see what we're up to specifically around Sinai and some of the issues we're grappling with. Um, but either of those are probably the best places linkedin of course so great great yeah i appreciate it. yeah no it's a great podcast i've listened to it we, we like it a lot and um this is super exciting yeah we'll link to all your your information that you just mentioned here in the show notes and uh 
This was great, uh, Robin. Um, to our listeners out there, again, this is the Pop Health Show. This is for anyone with a strong passion for making other people healthier in this world. Uh, Dr. Fields, thanks again so much. This was great. Thank you for having me. Thank you.